This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Bed, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com at amica insurance we know it's more than just a car it's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive the hatchback that took you cross country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool for the cars you couldn't live without trust amica auto insurance amica Empathy is our best policy. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we travel to the medieval village of Rottenburg in Germany, a place that goes back to the 13th century and where the 13th century is very much alive and well well-preserved. I'll speak with the Lord Mayor of Rutenberg, who explains the history of the village and how it was miraculously spared during the Allied bombing of Germany in World War II. Then, I'll talk with the director of one of the more unusual museums you'll ever see, the Museum of Medieval Crime and Justice. And then, a surprise guest, an American expat who moved to Rutenberg and now sings here. A fascinating look at a place that looks exactly the way it did nearly 700 years ago. And it's not an e-ticket ride at Disneyland. It's real. First up, my conversation with the Lord Mayor, Marcus Nasser. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Dr. Marcus Nasser, how are you, sir? I'm perfectly fine, thank you. You know, walking around, I mean, look, this is a town made for walking. This is a town made for exploring it's probably, and I said this in the opening, you know, one of Europe's most beautiful medieval towns. 
Um, and it's bigger than I thought it was going to be. Honestly, uh, the walking was 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 bigger than I thought it was was bigger than I thought it was going to be. And the wall, I mean, it dated, it's seven hundred and forty eight years old. Um, you know, going back to what? I'm going to give you the right date. Seventeen twenty. Excuse me, seventeen twelve seventy four. I mean, my goodness. And the history is so well preserved. The cobblestone streets. Uh, wear a good pair of walking shoes, sneakers preferable, because it's not even streets, but that's the beauty of it. Uh, But what I love is how well you've preserved it, because this is a town that for so many centuries welcomed kings, emperors, religious pilgrims, um, and uh, it's still going. That's correct. Historical preservation is one of the main topics uh, in this town. Historical preservation started early here. It started in the end of the 19th century already at a time... Because they already knew what they had. Yes, they already knew what they had. Um, There was kind of uh, um, rediscovering of uh, Rotenburg in the 19th century when artists came here and said, oh, wow, that is such a wonderful medieval town we should preserve that for the future. And people here in Rotenburg took that idea, well, and are living it up till now. Now, the real name of the, of the town is Rotenburg of the Tauber. Correct. Because of the river. Correct. Uh, it means lying above the Tauber River. Tauber is the name of the river, and ob der is German for above the Tauber Valley. Now, you're also a professor. Uh, yes, I used to be. Nobody no. used to be. You're always a professor. Okay, I'm still a professor. <laughs> <laughs> a professor of what? A professor of history. Oh, how perfect. Well, probably that's the reason why people thought it might be a good idea to have that guy as mayor. <laughs> a so, lot of people are telling me that a history professor is the ideal person to be, to be in charge of this town. Well, I would think it would be only because you can provide context, you can provide perspective, you know what used to be. Correct. And uh, most of all, uh, you can also like judge history, which is not the case for, for everybody. I mean, it's not about knowing history. It's also about knowing what is more important, what is less important, what is unique and what is common. Well, of course, there's the famous quote by uh, Mr. Santayana, uh, Santayana who said, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Y- you remember the past. Yes, We do. Everybody here in Rotenburg does, I think, because the past is present here in in every single corner. So in Rotenburg, you cannot forget about the past because you see it every day. What I'm, I, I will tell you what I'm thrilled about. I, I can't find a McDonald's. I can't find a Starbucks, right? I think the nearest subway is, what, three or four miles away, maybe. Uh, And everything here is, I mean, I'm looking at the buildings and, you know, there's 1617 up there and 1790 over there. I mean, it's, it really is preserved. It is. Uh, but um, honestly, we used to have a McDonald's till some years past, Uh-oh. right in the middle of the town. It and didn't survive. Why? <laughs> Probably because people thought that a McDonald's would not fit into a medieval city center. Yeah, I, I want some 15th century French fries. I don't think so. <laughs> But seriously, what, how hard do you have to work to preserve this, though? It's really a tough job because historical preservation is not for free. It costs a lot of money. Um, most of the things that you mentioned are actually owned by the city itself. So when we talk about the medieval city wall, the fortification, the wells, uh, the fountains that we have, those are all buildings that cost a lot of money to preserve, but would not bring you any finances. I mean, who pays money for a city wall? Nobody. Only right. the one preserving it, but visitors wouldn't say, oh, this is uh, such a spectacular city wall, I'm giving the city five euros to go in, or five dollars. Well, you're not charging admission, is what you're doing, no. We wouldn't even be allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about that city wall, because it's so much longer than I thought. I mean, sometimes you see a city wall... It's just a fraction of the size of the way it used to be. Yours goes literally almost all around. It goes all around, yeah. and it's um, wall walkable in most parts, um, which means that you, you can actually have a perfect view on all of the old town. Um, in medieval times, Rotenburg was one of the bigger cities, not one of the smaller ones. That probably leads to the impression that the wall is longer than you actually thought. And well, 
Rutenburg is a bit weirdly shaped. So we have a lot of wall for not much area in, this, in some parts. But of you the had South. something to protect. The reason for the wall it was defensive. Yes, yes. We have, Rutenburg was quite a wealthy town in medieval times. So the it wall. It was a target. Was, it was a target as well. You wouldn't. You would want to prevent uh, other knights, uh, other forces to come and uh, just take what you have. Did anybody ever successfully take it? Yes, but not in medieval times. Tell <laughs> only, me. Only, only in the early modern period, in the Thirty Years' War, Rutenburg was conquered. The Rutenburg fortification system is uh, a medieval fortification. That's what we are proud of. So basically, it means till about the 1500s, we were up to date. Um, the Thirty Years' War was in the 1600s, like 1630. So then there were a lot of bigger cannons that did not exist when our walls were built. So, well, we were an easy target, I would say, for the cannons uh, in the 17th century. And during World War II. And during World War II. Well, during World War II, we were not prepared to defend ourselves at all. There was no, like, the, there was no resistance when we were bombed uh, in the end of the Second World War. And you were, you were not wiped off the face of the, of the earth like Dresden, but you sustained, you sustained a lot of damage. We were lucky in uh, having a very bad day. Like uh, December, not, not December, I'm sorry, March 31st, 1945. So towards the end of the war. Towards the end of the war and uh, four weeks after Dresden. So Dresden is always known for having been bombed very late in the war. Rotenburg was even four weeks later. So we were yeah, very late to be bombed and it was well, not even intended to bomb uh, Rotenburg. Uh, the American bomber pilots uh, were actually uh, trying to hit an oil depot about 50 miles from here, but they couldn't find it because of some fog that was there. So on their way back from the mission they, that they had not accomplished, the they had to release their bombs somewhere. And they had an ideal target in our medieval town. Wow. You know, there's a very famous story. Actually, it's not that famous, but it's a, it's a very interesting story that was told by George McGovern, uh, the former senator from South Dakota who ran for president against Richard Nixon. He was a bomber pilot. And at the end of the war, he, was, and he'd been, he flew so many missions. And at the end of the war, he was flying back, and they had to release their bombs. They couldn't hit the target. They, they couldn't land with bombs. So he, they released the bomb, and he saw out of his window that it hit a farmhouse, and it obliterated the farmhouse. And he was wracked with guilt for about 40 years because he thought he'd killed all these people. And, and he never told that story. And one day, he was on a radio show and told the story. And about three hours later, he gets a phone call. It's the son of the farmer who said... I just want you to know we were on vacation that week. Nobody was home. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. With a happy ending. And for Rodenburg, it also somehow was a happy ending. As I said, we were a bit lucky while being destroyed. Why that? About 40% of our old town were destroyed uh, in the end of the Second World War. But it was the historically rather unimportant eastern part. 40% of the town obliterated. Right, but then you rebuilt, but you rebuilt in the same style. We rebuilt in the same style, but without copying what was there before. So there are some towns that rebuild in a way that you would call it a reconstruction. We did not do that. And uh, there were some towns that uh, rebuilt their houses in a way that they would look nicer than the original ones. We would call that historicizing, like making houses look older than they actually are. That is also not true for Rotenburg. So Rotenburg chose a different approach, and I would say a unique approach of rebuilding the houses in the old style, but a bit plainer than the original ones, not as ornate, so that people who have an eye for architecture would see which buildings are new, like 20th century reconstruction, not reconstruction, 20th century looking a bit older, but not pretending to be medieval. And this worked so perfectly well that visitors from all over this planet come to Rutenburg and say, oh wow, the whole medieval town is still original. And when you tell people, no, about 40% were destroyed, and tell them how to spot the new buildings, they will say, oh, wow, now that you explained it, I understand it. 
How do you spot a new building? Well, it's definitely plainer in the original ones. So the architect that was in charge here after the Second World War, he said, we need plain structures for the doors, for the windows, for the rooftops, so that with a, a close look, you will see, oh, that's a plain 50s or 60 years house. Got it. But people who would just see the whole street without having a look at one house, they would think, oh, that is purely medieval. The spots of the houses would be unchanged. The streets would be unchanged. A lot of other towns, they chose to re reconstruct their, their towns now suited for cars, get some space, uh, widen the streets, uh, let the cars go in. In Rotenburg, that was not done. Uh, it was a decision to say, no, we keep the old streets. We have streets here that are like two meters wide and are still regular streets. You can drive there with your car. I wouldn't want to do that with a Hummer, but um, <laughs> with, a, with a normal car, you have I wouldn't want to do anything with a Hummer, so we're okay on that. <laughs> Let's talk about the churches here, because you were a site for so many years, including now, for the pilgrims. Correct. And you, and the, but the churches survived. The churches all survived. We have five medieval churches in town, five medieval churches. They were all spared during the bombing in the Second World War. That's why I said we were a bit lucky in being unlucky. And we have a pilgrims church here, uh, St. James Church. I walked by it last night, yes. Did you have a chance to go I'm in? I'm going in today. Who will be your guide in I, the church? You will. <laughs> I, I would be happy to. Great, we'll do it. Absolutely, because I'm forward to I it. just you look up and it's 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 astounding. We have we have altars in there that are of such a high value, like from the the means of uh, artistic value. You will have a blast. Believe me. You're the first person who told me I was going to have a blast in a church, but I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Marcus Nasser, the Lord Mayor of Rothenburg. Other than the churches, when people come here for the first time, what's the thing that surprises them the most? They feel like going back in, in time. It's like a time travel. It's like you, you come here, you feel like in a fairy tale town, in an authentic medieval town. That is what, what people come here for, like, the thing you would hear most often is, oh, how beautiful, like in a fairy tale, it's like stepping back in time. When I walked last night uh, and earlier this morning, it's more than stepping back in time. It's stepping back slowly in time. You're not, I'm not compelled to walk quickly. I'm not compelled to rush because every, every step that you take, you're walking on history. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, this is a town that once you enter it, it gives you the feeling that everything fits. There are some towns that also have medieval town centers, but every now and then you will spot new buildings inside the town. And this somehow takes you back uh, to the present, where you see, oh, there were 10 beautiful old houses, and now I've got a new one made of steel and glass. So this ruins the, the idea of going back in time. In Rotenburg, you don't have that. We do not have a single modern building somewhere in town. The other thing that I truly appreciate is that, and I had dinner at, at uh, one of the hotels last night, it's a third-generation family-owned hotel. Um, your winery, it's fifth generation. Who can say fifth generation anymore? Well, we can in a lot of cases, and I would go even, even farther, there is one hotel in town that was owned by one of the mayors in medieval times. Um, it has been a hotel since the 1370s at least, and it has been since then. So, we're so what you're saying is inside that hotel is a medieval minibar. Well, no. the minibar is in a medieval room. So, yes, we could somehow call it medieval minibar. So the only modern touch is a refrigerator in the room. <laughs> Dr. Nasser, the thing that's so funny about Rothenburg is how many people have tried to copy it. And one of the, one of the big uh, culprits 
happens to be in Florida, happens to be in Orlando, happens to be at Walt Disney World. Would you please explain? Yes. I mean, uh, in Disneyland, Florida, you have the place called Epcot Center, and it shows um, pavilions from uh, a lot of European countries and countries worldwide, and one of them is the German pavilion there. The German pavilion at the Epcot Center is a 70% copy of uh, Rotenburg buildings. You have our Rotenburg fountain there, you have uh, parts of our towers, you have a building that is in our hospital area. So really, about 70% of that German pavilion are Rotenburg images. And then, of course, there are the real rip-off kings and queens in Helen, Georgia. <laughs> the, and if you're listening to me in Georgia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> the city of Helen, Georgia advertises as authentic Alpine village, and they're using our Rotenburg Plönlein image, like the view, the iconic view of Rotenburg to advertise themselves. So they would have our image and the label Helen Georgia on it. I remember a few years back, and this goes back a number of years, where we caught Bermuda uh, in an advertisement that they did on television talking about the beautiful beaches of Bermuda. The entire commercial was shot in Australia. <laughs> we, they got busted. So for the folks in Helen, Georgia, I suppose imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. You should be very happy. We are, and we take it as a compliment. So um, to, to all the, the people responsible for that in, in Helen, Georgia, please continue as you did. We, we take it as a compliment. We won't file a lawsuit against no, you. No, but you should, get you should get royalties on the refrigerator magnets. <laughs> that would be nice. We could need the money. <laughs> One of the other things that I noticed about where you are, to give everybody a sense of place, is that you were really part of a trade route here, weren't you? People stopped here on the way to somewhere else. Yes. So if they were going from, from Czechoslovakia to Paris, they had to come through here. Well, they didn't have to, but it made sense to come through here because it would be the easiest way to go from east um, to west. And we were also on a trade route from north to south. So there would be two trade routes. And it's a funny coincidence that most of the nowadays German highways, the Autobahns, follow medieval trade routes. And the two trade routes we have are now the Autobahn A6 and the Autobahn A7. We're directly at the A7 and very close to the A6. Of course, the difference between the Autobahn now and the medieval trade routes is the last time I looked, there was no speed limit on the Autobahn. But when you're stuck in a traffic jam, you have the feeling that the people in medieval times were faster. <laughs> Although I remember going on the Autobahn a couple of years ago, I could not believe how fast I was going. And it's still allowed in most, most of the areas. Exactly. But in this town, right, everything that was here and that is still here really had a function, right? The fountain in the middle of the square isn't decorative, it was functional. It's both. It's functional and decorative. So you're, you're making something that you need to have to look nice so that people would enjoy it. But it, it's, it has both reasons. Right, but also it was, for, it was for, for the cattle. Yes, for the cattle, for the horses, and also for the people. Like, the people needed to get their water from somewhere, and they didn't have running water in their house. So they would go and, and grab their water from the fountains. Which is still functioning today. Which is still functioning today. But nobody's going there with buckets anymore. Actually, you could do that if you wanted to in some spots, but we don't people in which. <laughs> exactly. So now it's more decorative than functional. Now it's become only decorative because of security reasons, so that nobody can ruin the water, stuff like that. But yeah, today it's decorative only, but in some spots where you wouldn't know, we would even have fish in our wells. There are some spots where in medieval times they were designed to keep fish in there. We still do that today. Today, you still do today, it? We still keep fish. We, as I said, we, don't, we wouldn't tell people where that is because people might want to see them and open up the boxes there. Like it's, it's stone blocks that are cut to be like a box where you can put in a lot of water and then put in fish. And there is some wooden device that protects it on top. People would take off the wooden device, I think. Do the fish come out of the well? No. They don't. We, we take them for eating. That's what I'm saying, they do. <laughs> oh yes, they do come out, but only for the purpose of being, becoming food. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to the Lord Mayor. Rottenberg may have been a small town, 
But as it developed, it was historically big on crime and even bigger on justice, medieval style. Dr. Marcus Herta, the managing director of the Museum of Medieval Crime and Justice, takes us back with a look back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. I'm very fine. So let's talk about this. I mean, it's a walkable city, uh, town. It's a walkable village. But everywhere you go, you're literally walking on history. And you're walking on uh, a, a period of time that is remembered by the buildings that are still here and remarkably well-preserved, including the prisons, including the gallows, including the towers. Um, I haven't seen the moats. The, the moats haven't been around, but the wall is certainly around. But tell me about the Museum of Crime and Justice. Well, the Medieval Crime and Justice Museum, located in the awesome medieval city of Rodenburg, is one of the largest worldwide and definitely the largest in Europe. It covers 2,000 years of European legal history and gives the visitors, the guests who are coming to Rotenburg to get a flavor how our ancestors here lived and how did they defend their city, how did they live really. We can't ask them, they are definitely dead many hundred years ago. So you can see the, the village, you can see the narrow coupled round paths, you can see the houses, but how did they solve problems? How did they reconcile quarreling couples? How did they convict a murderer? All these questions and answers to this question can be found in the Medieval Crime and Justice Museum. I mean, when you go back to the history of this town, you know, it goes back 748 years, where was the first court? Where was the first police officer? Where was the first prison? Where was the first guilty verdict and how was it applied? Well, the very first beginning of law in Rotenburg was in the um, old castle, the was today uh, the Burggarten, and as Rotenburg covers more than seventy, forty hundred years of um, of imperial city history, so there were a lot of uh, courts and a lot of towers and um, prisons over the, the hundreds of years, and this all is, can be found in the in the center of the city. For example, if there was a trial against a murderer, then this trial was in public. It took place at the marketplace. And the execution it, place was outside the city. So um, you can... It was an event. It was an event. You can compare an execution, as scary as it might sound, an execution in the Middle Age or the early modern time, you can compare it with, a, with the Oktoberfest in, in Munich, for example. Everyone in Rotenburg, A different version of Oktoberfest. And a very sad and um, painful and cruel uh, version of the Oktoberfest, but everyone came to the marketplace to have a look. They brought their the kids. Community. They brought their kids. They sold uh, sources. They uh, eat bread. It was yeah, like a church service, you can say. And it was orchestrated and performed just like, a, like any other performance. Yes, it was. In the Baroque times, it was uh, performed like a, a theater. You can call it the uh, a theater of scare or a theater of tragedy. How many people do we know executed? Do we have any idea? Well, there. I mean, Rodenburg was a rather um, small village, but you can say approximately one or two times every four or five years there have been an, um, a severe crime, such as murder, um, arson, um, rape. And so probably you can see, say, yeah, I think two or three times 
every five years there was a huge trial. That was the reason why, for example, the other imperial cities, such as Schwäbisch Hall or Nuremberg, asked if in their um, dungeons are three or four convicted murderer to loan one in quotation marks to Rotenburg to execute the, let's say, murderer of uh, Schwäbisch Hall. Well, you had Rotenburg. to keep the performance going. Yeah. To, uh, not to entertain, but to uh, teach the persons who are not able to read and to write, you don't have any internet or radio, um, to give the inhabitants um, to learn them what will happen if you be a thief. Basically the definition of right versus wrong. Yes. Now, how were the police sciences back then? My understanding was most of the criminals got away. You're definitely right. Uh, in Middle Age and early modern times, only one of ten crimes were solved. Nine so of ten murderers, manslaughters. So the odds were on your side if you were a criminal. Yeah, that's, and that's the reason why there were so much violence in this time, as there were no police force, there was no uh, criminal police. You, how will you find out who committed the crime with no... DNA tests, no... There was no CSI Rothenberg. No CSI Rothenberg back pass. <laughs> <laughs> and there still is no CSI, probably. Uh, but we try to get a CSI. I know. Series but here. Bottom line is you were using very primitive investigative techniques. Yeah. Now, in the collection of the museum, you have more than 50,000 items. Definitely. It's one of the largest collection. Uh, we display only 2,000 of these items in our two buildings on four floors. Um, but if you are um, a researcher in legal history, we had a lot of um, professors and doctors coming from all over the world, from California up to uh, Tokyo, to Rotenburg, to uh, investigate documents. And we are very proud having so many items to give the guests from all over the world. We do have 110,000 guests from 110 countries. So it's very international, trilingual in German, English and Japanese. So you can find answers to all your questions. So there's still a fascination with medieval crime and justice. Definitely, because it's the origin of our modern penal law, for example, especially in, in, in continental Europe. Well, when you talk about the 2,000 items that you do display, give me an idea of, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking shackles and, and, and uh, hatchets and all sorts of very painful metal objects. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Uh, a quarter of uh, our um, items we do um, exhibit are in a connection with torture as a way to get evidence, to sentence a person on the base of the evidence, or so torture has nothing to do with the sentencing, but only an evidence. Uh, torture instruments such as the stretching ladder, thumb screws, leg screws, and all these painful items to uh, torture and humiliate persons. And the second focus of the exhibition is on so-called shame punishments. It's quite... Um, Hanging somebody with a chain. Um, Suspending them, if you will. For example, a shame mask, neck fiddles, all these things to mock persons in publicity. So you can find it today if you have a chit-chat on TikTok or Instagram and have these hate speeches. That's quite similar to the um, dynamics in the past. Uh, third point of view of the museum are the items connected with death penalties, such as gallows, execution swords. Um, and we are very proud having items linked with so-called legal, uh, legal myths, such as the Iron Maiden of Nuremberg. Explain. Well, um, if you have a look at the TV shows, if you have uh, Hollywood movies, you can find Iron Maidens as torture devices or killing machines. You can find it at... Even artists as Michael Jackson uh, performed in an Iron Maiden in his history tour or in Sleepy Hollow. So you can find a lot of stories about... Um, Iron Maidens, but we discovered that it was a, a legal legend. Never, there has never been an Iron Maiden to kill or torture persons. It's an invention of the 19th century, and we do have the one and only Iron Maiden. The one is also Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, visited in Nuremberg and wrote a world-famous novel regarding this Iron Maiden, and this brought the Iron Maiden to a world-famous such a heavy metal band, Iron Maiden, named after this item. And so the we coolest thing about the Iron Maiden heavy metal band is one of the members of that band is a licensed 747 captain and flies the band around in a 747. How cool awesome. is that? Awesome. Completely different application of the words Iron Maiden, of course. <laughs> but one of the things I want to talk about, because you gave me different divisions of the museum... Mm -hmm. There are the interrogation techniques, right? 
which involved torture, right? Um, and by the way, we've seen those interrogation techniques over the decades and centuries repeated and repeated and repeated by people who don't have respect for civil law, right? Definitely. But you have to draw a distinction between the torture in the European past and the torture um, used in present times, as in uh, the torture in past was a considered necessary um, interrogation technique to get an evidence to get the confession, which was a base for sentencing a person. So the confession was considered uh, the queen of proofs. And in case you have only just one eyewitness, then torture was allowed to get the confession or even not. If you look at the interrogation techniques that they used then, that would be the, the subject of someone's trial being thrown out today. They, that they said they used those techniques illegally and against human rights to, to obtain a confession. Today, Hopefully those techniques are not used. Definitely. We are very glad having all these items stored in a museum, not in a courtroom. So torture is, is a technique in the past. But you should have considered that torture was an exemption, even in the past, only in very severe cases, such as high treason, for example, or sorcery, witchcraft, or murder, manslaughter. Then it was allowed to torture a person if there were at least one credible eyewitness. And according to... German criminal law, if a judge has one credible eyewitness, the judge has to sentence the person for lifelong imprisonment. So Without the torture. Without the torture. So um, torture was... So basically, if there are no eyewitnesses, please step into this room. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Yikes. What lessons can be learned from this museum for the scholars who are studying legal processes today? Um, we can learn a lot of things. That's the reason why we are um, doing a lot of lectures all over the universe in the world. Have a trust in your um, present legal system, especially in the in the States and Japan and um, in, in Europe. Um, don't use any kind of violence in a trial to get evidence. We are so um, good at um, interrogation techniques that you don't need violence to get a confession Because um, we saw in the Iraq situation, the prisoner situation in that terrible prison, Abu Ghraib, mm -hmm. where they were waterboarding people. Yes. They were, and, they, and, and the evidence showed that despite all of those harsh techniques that violated everybody's rights, they never really got the information they wanted. And that's, that's the reason. Uh, torture uh, is a kind of applicable violence against a human being. To get information, but if the pain becomes too strong, everyone, even me, would say everything to stop the pain. So um, torture was in the past um, a legal method as there were no credible eyewitnesses or DNA tests or CSI Rotenburg, for example, and the judges had to sentence, they had to solve the the crimes, the, the problems, the, the find a convicted person. So Well, we are very happy having a police force, a criminal police, a CSI, to um, let all these items, if it comes to torture, in the museum and don't use this in the courtrooms in 2020. When people come to visit, and I'm not talking about the scholars, I'm talking mm. about people like me. Mm. What's the thing that surprises them the most when they see the museum, when they see the exhibits? I think, which is, I think the most surprisingly is that, that every... Every second of a person in the Middle Age and early modern time, especially in the early modern time, was regulated. I mean, your Germans are keen on rules and regulations and documents and papers, and you can find that even the the way you are dressed was regulated in Rotenburg. Uh, how many earrings you are allowed to wear as a, a farmer's wife, for example. Everything was regulated. When, um, for example, everyone in Rotenburg had a lot of of animals, sheep, um, chickens, all, and there were rules and regulations when to bring the cows at the farm, so everything was regulated to keep peace in a city. As 5,000 inhabitants in such a narrow, small village as Rotenburg, in the inner circle of the city walls, you need law as a way to regulate life to bring peace in a city. And today, you don't just visit the museum, you can see the gallows, they're still around. They're definitely still around. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. 
They're not operational. <laughs> not operational. Uh, all the things are not functional and uh, locked in showcases, so you are safe visiting the museum. At one point, how many gallows were here? Depending on the uh, the, the crime situation, you have the uh, gallows hill outside from Rotenburg. Uh, it's a fairy tale that the gallows were placed at the marketplace or in the city because um, if you die by um, by hanging, you would leave at the gallows until you uh, fall down. So the gallows were two miles uh, south of Rotenburg, and as they were um, constructed from wood, they wouldn't endure the the time over 20, 30 years, depending on one to three gallows. Anybody beheaded? Definitely. Beheading was the most honorable way to sentence and bring a person to death only for the for the noblemen, for the clerks, for the um, for the city council person. So off with his head, meant off with his head. Off the head, but having the possibility to enter paradise, which was not possible if you would be a person who was burned at the stake or if you would hang at the gallows. Then you came definitely directly to hell. Ah, I, I didn't know the distinction. Okay, so if you're hanged or you're burned, you're already in hell. Yeah, that no chance to have um, the final day of judgment to have the chance to get salvation. But if your head gets cut off, you're heading upstairs. If you confessed, in a true confession, committed your crime, then you had the chance to, to go to, a, to a, um, paradise. And that is one very important aspect you have to consider if you're reaching legal history in the past. It's all combined and linked with Christianity and with belief. My thanks to Marcus Hurtig. And then, there's the story of Amelia Hansen. Wherever I travel, I'm always on the lookout for American expats and the decisions they made that brought them to live outside the U.S. So how did Amelia go from Tennessee to Ruttenberg? And why is she still here? I'll let her explain. Amelia Hansen, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I mean, a strange tale of you going from one day being a flight attendant for AirTran, for those people who remember that airline, now part of Southwest, and 10 days later saying, okay, I'm gone, and here you are in Rotzenberg singing and performing. Yes, crazy story. <laughs> when you first got here, I mean, this, this had to be a brave new world for you. Yeah, I didn't uh, know the language at all. I didn't know that hello was hollow in the German <laughs> language. I, I was oblivious. Yeah, but thankfully my husband, he spoke German, so it was just one of us that had to learn the language. And one of us did? Yes, I took integration <laughs> courses. Yeah, I had, to, I had to integrate as fast as possible because I wanted to get a foothold here. But of all the places that you could have picked, why Rothenburg and, why, and what, did the, you know, what did this city or this town have an impact on you? Well, the reason we picked Rothenburg up the tower is because there's a Scottish shop here in this town. And my husband's grandmother happened to be Scottish. And he had visited Rothenburg in 1998, went to this shop, bought himself a hat, still has that hat to this day. And when we had moved out here first in 2008 to Ingolstadt, um, he had said, you know, let's go take a day trip out there to Rothenburg. So we did. We met the owner. He asked him if he wanted to buy the shop um, or if he could buy the shop and the owner was not so sure. And then about four years later, we got a little bit of an inheritance. And then uh, my husband said, you know what? We could stay here in Ingolstadt or we could call that Scottish shop. So he calls him up. He says, I was going to put an ad in the paper this week. And my husband said, stop. He canceled his classes teaching English and we drove out here. And six months later, the shop was ours. So that's how we got to Rotenburg. But now you've gone from flight attendant to German-speaking singer. <laughs> yes. So as my husband had this job, he had fulfilled a dream. Uh, I needed to do something. What was I going to do? Well, my best friend, Carrie, came to visit us not so long after we had moved to Rotenburg, and we went on a tour here, and she goes, look at that tour guide. Man, that person is super successful. She's like, you were a tour guide back at university. Uh, she said, why don't you combine your singing with a tour? And so that's where the idea was born. And you brought a song to sing today. I did. <laughs> yes, it's called Unter den Linden. Um, it's a probably the most famous Minnesang, and Minne is the medieval German word for love and song, or Zang song, you could probably guess. And so if you put it together, what do you get, Peter? You get, of course, 
Minne love song, love songs, right? <laughs> so Minnesong, and this song is a very a traditional Minnesong, and uh, everybody in Germany learns about this composer, Walter von der Vogelweide, in school, and they all know this song. So okay, I'm ready. All right. German so good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it's medieval high German language, and so it's a completely different animal than regular German, of course, and many people don't understand, even Germans today have trouble understanding the old language, just like Shakespearean English to us. But it's if you're going to sing in Rothenburg, it better be medieval. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But you brought another song. Mm -hmm. This is one you wrote. Correct. Tell me about it. Okay, it's called Burning, and it's basically kind of a love song, um, but it has a lot of metaphors with uh, space. So it's a space-themed love song. I don't know. So, and it just, it was something that came very quick to me, and I, I love the song. It's probably one of my favorite songs that I've ever written, and luckily I was able to get it produced really fast, and um, that was about a year ago now. Um, and it's kind of like a dreamy pop song, so it's a, quite a lot different than this medieval classical music that I sing. Okay, let's pop away. Travel at the speed of light, looking for the perfect lover. Black holes in my line of sight, only fading stars I have discovered. Floating in the void of space, I can't see past the dark matter. Space and time are out of place, I feel like Alex with the star of matter. Then out of nothing comes a new unknown, a sense of safety in your cosmic zone. Do I dare say I'm not alone, I'm not alone, have I traveled to a new zone? Oh, 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 oh. now I'm halfway around the sun. And I'm still burning for you. And now I'm halfway around the sun. And I'm still burning for you. Do I let you go? 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 Encounters of a third kind leave my vessel feeling weaker. All systems are now offline as we travel even deeper. Your world is strange and cold, though my core is nearly blazing. Supernovas then unfold, but won't stop my hesitating. Not so. bad. Wow. <laughs> Too bad you don't have a voice. <laughs> Amelia Hansen, yeah. now you're doing the tours yourself. Um, yes. So basically, I am the wife of Oswald von Wolkenstein, who is classified as the last Minnesänger. And yeah, so what happened is that I was with my Oswald von Wolkenstein in 1445. And as he was dying and I didn't know what to do, I opened my eyes and what was in my room but a spinning wheel. And no medieval woman can resist a spinning wheel, also not in the most hopeless of situations. So I go over, prick my finger on the spinning wheel, fall asleep for 575 years. And when I wake up, I'm not in the medieval times anymore. I'm in Rotenburg of the Tower, married to an American man with a Scottish shop. And therefore I have lost my medieval accent so quickly. 
My thanks to Amelia, to Marcus Herta, and to Lord Mayor Dr. Marcus Nasser. And my thanks to you for listening to this special Ion Travel podcast from Rottenburg in Germany. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know exactly what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.